This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we have Akil McClay, System Director of APM Operations at Trinity Health. In his role, Akil is responsible for the implementation, deployment, and operational CIN, ACO, and APM activities across four states that include Delaware, Pennsylvania, Indiana, New York, covering 290,000 lives. Akil also serves as the executive director for the Trinity Health Integrated Care MSSP Enhanced ACO, and he's led Trinity Health Integrated Care to achieve $45 million in shared savings in the last three performance years. So Akil is a great guest this week. We've been learning from one of the leading CINs in the country. Daniel, I'm just real happy to have had the chance to connect with him and, and learn about the great work they're doing there at Trinity Health. I completely agree, Eric. You know, Akil's just an enjoyable person to speak with, and he's got a great background and a great story, and his perspective and thinking on health equity and addressing the challenges that we face in our nation is really important, and so I'm just glad our listeners get to join us on this experience today. Let's go ahead and hear from Akil McClay as he joins us in this week's Race to Value. Akil McClay, welcome to Race to Value. It's so great to have you today. Yeah, happy to be here. And I remember partnering with you guys in your finance committee about two years ago. So just really excited about learning more about your organization and also any information I can share with the listeners that'd be helpful. Well, we're really excited to learn more about your organization. But before doing so, Akil, I thought a great way to start our conversation would be to get to know you a little bit. So we really want to start with your why as a leader. I mean, what's your end goal here in terms of your career and your body of work up until this point? I thought you could maybe start today just by sharing with our listeners your background and what led you to this calling to serve underserved populations and the disenfranchised, addressing equity and truly helping those in need. How did your upbringing impact you and provide you with the opportunities to really be where you are today? And is there a pivotal moment that started you down this path towards value-based care? 
And that's a great question. You know, I would say, you know, my formative years, I, I was fortunate enough to have two parents that were in healthcare. Uh, my father being a physician and, and my mother being a, a licensed clinical social worker. So really getting that foundational understanding early on about what healthcare is and what it looks like through the eyes of both being a minority myself, but also having two minority providers in my family. I really say my, my healthcare journey was really founded upon when I really started in high school, when I was a high school senior. I had the opportunity to mentor under a hospital CEO who happened to be African-American. And he really took me under his wing uh, because I was trying to make a decision of what I was gonna do in college. And originally when I thought about healthcare, I would say it's most folks have, you think about physicians, you think about nurses, and even then, even though I had two providers in my family, that really was my view of healthcare. So that was the first time I ever interacted with a healthcare leader and got a chance to see how the whole system worked. And he gave me this book and I'll never forget it. And he's like, hey, I want you to read this. And every week I'm going to kind of like quiz you on it. And so that really did kind of start to pique my interest around what's going on in healthcare. And I think the thing that also helped me during that time was the hospital he led was a charity care hospital. So it did work with a lot of that vulnerable patient population that we're seeing now that's been impacted by COVID and seeing how the challenges they had. Like when, you, when you're talking to a patient and they're literally making a decision between feeding their family or whether they need to take their medication and how the things that you see outside the clinic actually influences their overall healthcare needs. So those are kind of the pivotal things that pointed me in those directions. But I would say, even still, I wasn't clearly set on moving towards an administrative position in healthcare. When I got into college, I started off in psychology, I actually thought I was going to do a PhD. And then my, my focus kind of shifted a little bit into neuroscience and I ended up getting my master's in neuroscience. But that was kind of a beautiful sentiment there because of my neuroscience background, I actually ended up going back to the hospital that Dr. John the Roberts, who was the CEO over, managed. And the, the thing about that was, was that then I had access to some of the physicians. He wasn't CEO there in time, but they remembered him. Some of the folks remembered me. And so actually I started mentoring under some of the providers there in the clinic, and they allowed me to kind of follow around some of the med students they work with. And long story short, I ended up dating one of those fourth year med students, and she opened my eyes, again, the hospital administration and told me about how she had a colleague who actually ended up dropping out of medical school and going to get his, his master's in, in healthcare administration, how that shift become his focus. So that was something that really got me down the path from a pivotal standpoint of going down this road in terms of maybe this is something I would like to do. But my why still comes back to where can I make the greatest need? So what really shifted my focus the most part from um, as I told you originally, thinking about being a physician to my girlfriend kind of piquing my interest in healthcare administration of where I can have the greatest impact. Uh, one of the things I did get opportunity to see firsthand uh, with my dad being a provider is that when you're a primary care physician, typically you have the ability to impact thousands of patients. When you're a healthcare leader, and especially when you think about a large healthcare system like Trinity Health, you really have the ability to impact millions of lives across the country. And so I felt that if I were in that leadership position, I would be able to have a greater impact around that. 
And so that's really kind of been my journey to kind of how I got into healthcare, you know, a short version to the why I continue to do it. And it really is that focus on improving the healthcare outcomes for the patient population as a whole, but in particular, uh, being a minority myself, the patients that I actually reflect. Kill, I love hearing that story. I love hearing your why. And I'm really inspired and appreciate you sharing that journey with us. I want to dive deeper into the conversation with you on health equity. It's such a paramount concern in the value movement post-COVID and addressing challenges in access for minority communities, as well as the equitable distribution of vaccines. I mean, these are urgent needs. In preparing for this discussion, I read that many of the communities that Trinity Health serves are impacted by structural racism and historical disinvestment, which has resulted in significant impoverishment and inequities. And Trinity Health's first core value really struck a chord with me, and it's this, it's reverence. We honor the sacredness and dignity of every person. Uh, what a fantastic guiding principle for how you approach your relationships with your patients. And Trinity Health's VP of Diversity and, and Inclusion, LaRonda Chastang, has said that health equity must be for everyone to create the fair and just opportunity for everyone to be as healthy as possible. And Trinity President and CEO Mike Slabowski has talked about how we are living in unprecedented times and facing three major challenges, a public health crisis with COVID-19, an economic crisis, and a social justice crisis. And as you've mentioned, the position you're in has such great influence. I mean, Trinity Health is one of the largest integrated care delivery systems in the nation, serving more than 30 million people across 22 states. And what an incredible opportunity you have this organization to make a, a difference nationally. So I'm just hoping you could speak to what Trinity is doing in advocating for racial justice. It starts with us. You need to have leaders who are reflective of the communities we serve. And that was something that during this pandemic, there are a lot of challenging things that, that happened, but I think there's some good that's come out of that. It's opened the discussion around racism and, and racism Systemic racism in particular can be a very difficult conversation to have, but it's opened the door. And because of that, you know, and Mike Slombowski, and really to his credit, he's done a fantastic job around this. He specifically for his leadership roles have gone after uh, high qualified African-American candidates. And so when you have people that are making these decisions that look like the community, you're able to make more informed decisions. You're able to make better decisions, what ultimately gonna help to improve the outcomes for the patients. And so that's really the first step that we took. The next step is really globally going back to our mission, You know what's important. So it's really always been this focus on the underserved patient population. And one of the challenges we actually saw in our market, one of our markets was our Philadelphia market. So going back to the vaccine distribution, 42% of the Philadelphia market is African-American. What we realized was that only 21% were actually receiving the vaccine. And in 38 states across the United States, the non-white patients were actually getting the vaccines in a much higher rate than our black and brown communities. And so that was really a focus of ours. And so we want to understand why was that happening? And we actually partnered with the University of Pennsylvania in that market. And we actually had uh, an article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine around this, where we looked at the struggles, right? And the challenges of why first started with the way the vaccine distributions were scheduled. A lot of it was app-based, online-based. 
So a lot of these individuals didn't have internet access, or at least consistent internet access. So that was the first barrier we removed. The second was a lot of it were transportation issues. If you have these max vaccination centers, but they are away from the community, it might be a challenge for a person to go there the first time, let alone if they have to come back there for a follow-up dose. So one of the things we moved towards was let's meet them where they are. So we started having a healthcare clinics where we would do vaccinations within churches, community centers. We worked with the liaisons, really started a grassroots campaign to really engage that patient population. Another thing I would say we, we did beyond that, outside of that particular market, was really an education process. So understanding that minorities in the past have been experimented on at times, right? You think about the Tuskegee experiment. So there really was a lot of concern in Black and Brown community around a vaccine that some felt had been rushed and not tested. You know, is this something that they're using a target to maybe create issues within a minority community and so forth? And so really, we did a lot of education services around that. We also had leaders not only within the community, but also our physician leaders go on social media and say, look, I've been vaccinated, right? This is safe. And we really promoted that. So those are some of the things that we've done really around education, figuring out what the challenges are in our black and brown communities in terms of receiving the vaccine and making it more accessible for them to really try to mitigate some of those issues. And obviously it's not perfect, but the good news is, in particular with the Philadelphia example I mentioned, as of March, we had vaccinated around 2,800 people um, in that particular community, and around 85% of them were African-American. Well, Kiel, one other thing I wanted to ask you about in your background, uh, you started your healthcare administration career in the VA system, and we just interviewed Dr. David Shulkin, who was the ninth secretary of the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs for the Trump administration on our podcast, and he made the comment that he came out of private sector as a physician executive, and he thought he was going to go into the VA and and really apply a lot of the best practices and the latest and greatest things. And he saw like, oh, wow, there's a lot that the private sector can learn from the VA. And that resonated with me because you and I had that same conversation a couple of weeks ago. And so I wanted to just ask you, you know, you, you started with the VA early on in your healthcare administration career, I mean, you were seeing that they have a fully integrated longitudinal electronic health record. They have telehealth and remote patient monitoring and disease management programs. They have behavioral health fully integrated into primary care, and they're not stuck in this whole private sector reimbursement model of fee-for-service. They do really have an innovative approach to also social determinants of health. They really do a lot for veterans in terms of providing transportation and finding vets' homes and providing food security and medications. So can you tell our listeners, what did you learn early on in your career that led you to believe that the VA is really an exemplar for innovation and there's a lot that the private sector can learn from them. And then how are you using your prior experience with the VA to really inform your work and the priorities at Trinity Health? I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to, to work at the VA. And to your point, there's so much innovation that people don't get the chance to see if you don't work in the VA. Going back to, like you said, the, the standardized healthcare record, and I remember early in my career there when I, I was administrative fellow. Uh, so one of the things they would do during a fellowship is everyone would get 
a scheduling key. Everyone would have access to it because a lot of times you would have patients that would come there and they would just go up to anyone and say, hey, I have an appointment at three o'clock. Where is this located? What doctor am I meeting with? So you had to be able to access that information and being able to see patients who were not in our, our service area. So we had patients that would be in St. Louis, but sometimes as far away as even Hawaii one time and being able to help them look back and say, okay, yeah, this is where you need to go. My saw your last visit was here, really enabling them to have a better healthcare experience. I would say with the VA, one of the things about the VA is the way that they get paid for patient care. So they do have the ability to do some traditional payment model stuff with some of the things they do outside of their healthcare system. But in particular, um, when I worked for the VA, they got paid essentially almost like a capitated rate. So they got paid a certain amount of money for every single veteran. And that's what you had to manage their cost of care. So when you're working from a system like that and you're really incentivized to effectively manage these patients, it does change the way you look at and approach medicine. So you do get a lot more of a focus on preventative care type things. So going back to their diabetes management program or the remote telehealth monitoring, all of these things. And I think that's something that we're transitioning to, obviously in value-based healthcare. And that's something that I would say I leverage transitioning to the private sector is having a full understanding of these models. So one of the things at Trinity, we do want to move towards a fully capitated total cost of care model, because we really do feel that's where a lot of the value is, not only from a financial standpoint, but also giving us the best ability to care for our patients. So being able to see that the things that we're doing now just really gave me that foundation and appreciation. So one of the great things about Trinity is we're shifting towards that fully integrated EHR system. We have had, I think we had as many as around 22 or 23 different EHRs across all of our different markets. And so we are moving to our version of Epic called Together Health. I'm going to be a single instance of Epic and seeing at the VA how effective that was, even as something as little as being able to help a patient figure out where they need to go or help them really connect the dots on maybe why something is different here at this VA versus the other, because I was able to work with them and pull that information up, I think has been very effective. I myself, as a Trinity Health patient, am pleased to be able to go in and not have to go and tell the providers every single time, like what medications I'm on. And that's what my favorite thing to do is, is to sit there and say, hey, you know, go look at my MyChart account. But really all of these things, I think that the VA has done is really set the foundation of how things should be, but also more importantly, open the world around accessible care. Having that one medical record that follows you throughout the entire network is something that is extremely invaluable for the patient experience. Also something I would say the VA has done that's a little bit different than what we do in the private sector is the VA really acted like a community center, you know, at least at the, the organizations that I worked at, you had so many of the, the veterans where they didn't always have another place to go or a person to talk to. So a lot of times they would come there after their visit and kind of just hang out and interact with staff. And so really that, that engagement, especially as our patients get older and doing a lot of these things I've seen through the pandemic, just around the social isolation, I think that's something else we can kind of steal from the VA. How can we make that more of a connected care process versus you come here, you seek care, you leave, 
to actually this being part of a better holistic integrated model where we're truly focused on not just the physical symptoms of healthcare, but also getting more into the mental health aspects as well. Akil, I, I want to follow up on that and keep talking about the pandemic a little bit and how it, it's really touched every person, you know, every business, every activity in the U.S. On a personal level, we've seen priorities that have shifted as we've experienced significant loss of life, loss of income, all of this compounded by limitations to actually be with our loved ones. And at a business level, revenue loss from declines in fee-for-service reimbursement due to declining visits, it demanded quick stand-up of telehealth for almost every provider. And this pandemic has really exposed how systemically broken our healthcare system is, and it's opening new doors for innovation. And most importantly, inequities are being exposed at a wider level, whereby creating the catalyst to resolve social disparities in care that have persisted for far too long. And Trinity Health's values set the standard for your COVID response, as I mentioned, the reverence aspect, as well as the commitment to the poor. These are foundational to who you are as an organization. Can you speak to more about the impact that COVID has had on your patients, your organization, and then talk through your response? And how has the pandemic created opportunities for Trinity Health to capture the hearts and minds of the patients it serves? I saw in one example that you were able to raise over $6 million for things like housing, food insecurity, resiliency rounding, and more. So if you could share updates on what work is being done here to address the extreme vulnerabilities posed by COVID-19 in your patient communities. As you said, this, this is something that, you know, it's been a tough year. We lost about $2 billion in, in revenue. So we went from a, a $20 billion organization down to roughly around an $18 billion organization. Like many healthcare organizations across the country, we, we had to make very significant financial decisions. And that meant furloughing a lot of our employees, uh, even unfortunately having to transition some of them outside the organization. I would say the beautiful thing around that was we really shifted our focus. So the focus wasn't really about revenue generation, right? It became about how do we provide the best care for our patients? So we had people on my team that traditionally probably wouldn't have been involved in the COVID work. Now that's all they did, right? So we really did create, get creative around what resources do we need to be able to provide the care that was needed. So one of the things that we focused on was the vulnerable patient population. So we're blessed to have many different accountable care organizations across the country, Medicare, ACOs. And this already kind of gave us a long laundry list of a significant number of the vulnerable patient population that we serve. So the first thing we did was we really went through and we broke out that list. And then we went through market by market and we worked with our leaders and we gave them this list to say, how can we, A, get the patients in that need to be seen, right, so that their health care issues don't further exacerbate? And also, how can we develop a strategy to help that patient population better manage their care so that we free up our hospital facilities for the COVID patients? And so that really became our mantra with our team. And we had such amazing engagement with our care management team and with our patient population that, to be honest, we didn't even have pre-pandemic because People were so worried about going to the hospital that they would catch COVID that they say, hey, how can I better manage my diabetes? How can I better manage my CHF, right? So we were able to really leverage pieces of that 
the pandemic to be able to get further engagement. And then really kind of the next piece that you touched on, we didn't have a unified telehealth platform across Trinity. Some of our, our facilities did have telehealth services, but it wasn't something that was broad screen across all of our 22 markets. I would say in a matter of probably a month and a half, we were able to roll out a unified telehealth platform across all of Trinity Nation that really gave access to our patient populations. Also at the same time, it was a shift for our providers. A lot of our providers weren't used to engaging or scheduling telehealth visits with their patient population. So this is something that we really started to look at beyond just the pandemic. And also this is the way we should do care moving forward. So that, that's something that we really stress around some of those patient populations. Now, to be granted, there are challenges with that. And if I go back to, if you think about the vaccine scheduling distribution, you do have a lot of that population that don't have access to high-speed internet services. So that does create a challenge. And that, that's where we get around some of the social determinant health and our involvement in terms of community health and well-being and what we're doing in the communities. And that really is creating access through our clinically integrated networks. And what I mean by that is it may not necessarily be a Trinity Health physician that's servicing our population. We have many independent physicians that are also in our clinically integrated networks that help to expand the access that Trinity Health can provide for these patients. So not all of our independent physicians utilize telehealth services during a pandemic. Some of them are still open and able to service that patient population. So from the area that I focus on, which is clinically integrated networks and accountable care organizations, that's really some of the tools we use to really touch that patient population and try to deal with some of the, the healthcare equality issues we had during the pandemic. Well, Akil, I also wanted to learn a little bit more about your risk contract portfolio. Trinity Health participates in APM arrangements with different levels of financial risk and reward covering 1.5 million people and is responsible for about 9.1 billion in total cost of care. And you have one of the largest MSSP ACOs in the country. You're in the next gen program, you have MA contracts, you participate in bundles and you have other commercial and Medicaid VBC models. Your 2019 next gen ACO results were impressive. You know, you had a 95% quality score, 24 million in savings. You saved Medicare $112 million over four years. Great work. Congratulations. Your MSSP is equally impressive. You're in the enhanced track. Your ACO earned 13.7 million in earned shared savings while maintaining a quality score above 90%. And that achievement marks 44.9 million in earned shared savings for that ACO over the last three performance years. And if I understand correctly, you were poised to go into the GPDC model, except for, you know, as our listeners know, that second application was surprisingly canceled. So I'm, I'm just interested, Akil, to learn more about your APM contract portfolio and how it's performing. And has the organization reached a tipping point now for value-based care? I mean, how has the APM portfolio served to improve accountability for the populations that you serve there at Trinity Health so you can truly serve in the spirit of the gospel as a compassionate and transforming healing presence within communities? So one of the things at Trinity is that it's, it's always been our focus, value-based healthcare. And it really started 
with Rick Gilfillan. So when Rick Gilfillan came there, he was the CEO prior to Mike Sambowski, who's our current CEO. And he stated, I want a, I want an ACO in every single market we're in. I want a clinically integrated network. He also helped to co-found the Healthcare Transformation Task Force. And we've always had the ambitious goal of really moving towards a value-based healthcare model. And so the APRIM portfolio, we had the aspirational goal, as many other organizations that participate in Healthcare Transformation Task Force, was to have 75% of our revenue come through APMs by 2020. Um, and like many organizations, we, we weren't able to get there. So we have adopted a lot of the new goals that the land has come out with, and we're really supportive of that. And I would say the tipping point for Trinity has always been there because we see the future of value-based healthcare is really going to be more of a risk-based model because logically it makes sense not only from their studies around moving towards risk, improves performance on these value-based contracts and ultimately leads to better outcomes for the patient, but also from a business standpoint, it makes logical sense that the payers would shift more of the accountability to the providers as well. So this is something we've always been excited about, which is why we participate in every model because every model is a learning. And we got into next gen and we're, like you said, to your point, direct contracting as well. We were pursuing that before it got paused is because when you get involved in those models early, you have ability to influence how the model develops. And what we learned is a lot of the learnings that come from these models out of the CMMI get applied to the permanent program. So one thing, for instance, in the next gen program with the 3% increase on risk score, that was then applied to the Pathways to Success program. So now you have the ability to truly reflect the disease burden of your population. So our approach is still the same. We want to have the majority of our revenues eventually come through our value-based contracts because we believe that's best for the organization and also what's best for the patient. And having different type of contracts within across different markets is very beneficial from a learning perspective. One of the great things about Trinity is our size, right? We get to test out different things. So whereas in one market, a full risk capitated model might not be the best thing. But since we're in so many markets, we have the ability to find a market where that actually works. And so we learn about that. What do we need to do from a patient standpoint, a business standpoint to be successful in that contract? We've had the fortune to be extremely successful and value-based healthcare to the tune of, of generating hundreds of millions of dollars across our commercial and our Medicare contracts and earn shared savings. And that's something that I know a lot of large healthcare organizations, you know, sometimes have struggle, but because it is, it is a yin and a yang. To have the success we have, you have to take the money from somewhere, right? And traditionally that focus is going to be around reducing utilization in the highest cost of care environment, which typically are our hospitals. And this is a kill speaking here, not Trinity Health, but just being in this world, you know, ultimately our goal should be to have less hospitals. We should do such a good job that we don't need to have as many hospitals because our patients are in much better health and their health doesn't get to a point where it's exacerbated enough to actually need to go to a hospital. And so as we transition down this value-based stream, it really is important from a training health perspective that this becomes our focal point and we're less dependent on hospital revenues. I also think something that shifted 
and not just within Trinity, but the healthcare landscape in general was the impact of COVID. Having a $2 billion loss because you had a 50% reduction in your hospital utilization made you really think about what do we need to do differently? So if we experience something like this again, we can have a sustainable financial model. So I really do truly believe that we were kind of ahead of the tipping point, but I believe the final tipping point to really double down our focus on value-based healthcare really came from the impact of COVID. Well, Akil, I'd like to ask you about an important piece of value-based care, which is risk adjustment and how it relates to your value-based playbook strategy. It's becoming increasingly important to reflect the burden of illness, especially in senior populations, so that you have the highest level of specificity for resource allocation, both in terms of care management interventions, as well as premium dollars flowing through the contracts to support population health needs. Can you provide a general overview of your approach to risk adjustment? How does Trinity Health approach its population coding documentation program for your Medicare and MA patients with regard to technology, capital, and staffing? Yeah, so this this is an area that's really been a focus of ours probably for the last five to six years. And we're still building out that capability. This, This hasn't always been something that we've had in place. And so a lot of that has really been around resource management, really hiring out physician lead and also administrative lead that understand what it takes to successfully document, you know, to be reflective of that that burden of illness within our our patient population. We focus a lot on the pre-planning visits to make sure that we're prepared to capture that. Also, we focus a lot around education. So one of the things we have done is very similar to what's been done um, in the commercial sector with, with healthcare plans, right? Really educating our providers around coding efficiency, why this is important, how this impacts patient care, and incentivizing them to get that education, right? So that in the future, they do a better job of reflecting the burden of illness for the patient population. I also think that we approach it maybe a little bit differently. So it really is from a quality standpoint. And we know that there's financial value that can come from this, but you know, financial gain is really never a focus for anything we do. It really is just about quality. And so we approach everything from a quality standpoint. If we do this, how can this make us be better providers for our patient care? How can this approach also help it better integrate within our system? And as we move to that fully integrated healthcare system, how can we be able to help that patient move more smoothly across continuum of care? So by doing that, we've been able to start to develop the resources we need around truly being, I think eventually want to become a leader in risk coding and documentation. And we do partner with a vendor. We partner with Health Fidelity. They work with us on all of our risk coding efforts across all of our value-based contracts. You know, we traditionally did start with a heavy emphasis around our Medicare population, um, and then we spread that out to our commercial and other arrangements that we have, such as our MA products. But really, they've been such a fantastic partner and have amazing technology, and it really is around really planning for that that pre-visit and also, you know, doing some things around post-visit, but really that pre-visit planning and really having those workflows set up in the practice where you can actually capture that pertinent information and helping the provider through education understand why it's important 
to code to the highest specificity from a quality standpoint. Well, Akil, as a value-based care executive and one of the leading CINs in the country, you really have a unique perspective about this movement towards more technology-enabled consumerism. I mean, certainly this movement is going to reshape care delivery and be a big part of our transition as an industry to value-based care. And you touched on earlier how you feel like there might need to be fewer hospitals in the future. And that certainly aligns with kind of this movement towards more virtualized care and procedures shifting away from the acute setting and into the ambulatory setting and acute care facilities in the future, they're going to have to be supported by a network of connected and expanded ambulatory resources like clinics and community health centers and outpatient surgery and post-acute services and home care that are enabled by this remote monitoring technology and really looking at how to look more holistically at the population and really know what's going on in the patient's home. And this move towards technology enablement really aligns with this whole movement towards consumerism in our country anyway. And I'm just thinking about how with COVID, we've seen this acceleration and the scalability and adoption of telehealth and how that's a big sign of things to come in the future. So I wanted to ask you, Akil, in this advent of clinical integration with more of an emphasis on ambulatory care and consumerism, how is Trinity Health adjusting its population health focus to provide a more patient-centered, tech-enabled, relationship-based way to deliver care for the future? Is Trinity Health thinking about moving away in the future from the brick-and-mortar delivery towards more ambulatory care and virtual care delivery with digitalized platforms and things like that? Yeah, so I, I would say that's in addition to, right? And, and I don't think we, we made the decision to to fully transition away from, from brick and mortar, but it's another access point. And we know we need to make healthcare accessible. One of the things that Trinity Health has done is really the investment in Epic. When you, when you look at how large we are and the financial investment it would take to move to a single instance of the EHR system, that's really a consumer approach. So if you go back to, you know, my experience as a patient coming in and if whether I'm seen in Illinois or whether I'm seen in Florida, my patient record is the same. And I don't have to go in and tell that patient, that provider, hey, these are medications I'm on. Also, it's really open accessibility too in terms of communication. So one of the things I do about having that single instance is I can communicate with my primary care provider around the care that I may be received at, you know, one of our urgent care facilities or our hospitals. He might say, hey, Kiel, I noticed that you went to the urgent care for this issue. Can you tell me a little bit more of what happened? Why did you go there? And so be able to have that instantaneous feedback. A lot of times I'll shoot him an email through my chart in the 5 a.m. and within four or five hours, he's already responded. So I really think that approach to really having an integrated delivery platform that gives you a singular Trinity Health experience is something that really is effective from a patient engagement standpoint. And I really think, you know, from the healthcare landscape, it's not really different than you see at any other organization. Everything has to become more accessible and then also more affordable. And one of the things that value-based healthcare does is our goal is to make healthcare more accessible, more affordable. And those things are what's best for the, the for the patient community. I feel like, you know, we still obviously have opportunities to continue to engage. This is really a shift in the landscape of healthcare, moving from a more provider-centric model to a model where really you're engaging the patient to be a co-producer in their healthcare. 
And I really think that connectedness around the medical health record and also have an ability, you know, when you work with the Epic and you're, you're leveraging a mind chart, you can connect it to, to their wearable device, like a, like a Apple watch. And so that really does also help us target younger patient populations. So as we think about growth over time, the way we consume healthcare in my generations and those generations that are older than me is going to be very different than how younger generations consume healthcare. And I really do applaud the approach towards an aggressive telehealth expansion, which we've done and where the industry is moving. But there also needs to be acceptance that healthcare, from the standpoint of it, is never going to be a completely virtualized experience. There are going to be some things that are still going to need to happen from a face-to-face standpoint, but the approach of understanding that we have to move from a traditional, to your point, brick and mortar experience to more of an online experience and shift more in healthcare towards a services company where we provide healthcare services to our patients versus seeing them purely as a customer that comes in for something and then leaves, but really developing that truly integrated experience. Then technology is definitely the way we're going to enable that over time. Akil, I love this vision that you're sharing. I mean, we're talking about 22 states, 94 hospitals, 18 clinically integrated networks, and nearly 8,000 employed physicians that are all going to be able to leverage this technology and use it to improve patient outcomes. And I'm thinking about in your role as a system director of APM operations at Trinity Health, you've been successful in leveraging advanced predictive analytics and technology to care for your patients. I'd love to learn more about how you have been able to optimize the Epic EHR system. How are you, can you speak to how you're able to leverage Epic to optimize physician workflows and support superior patient outcomes? So I would say we're still going through that process. We are still rolling out Epic across our healthcare system. We have stood up in a few markets, but one of the things we did that I think was really innovative for our large organizations was we developed work groups. And so we went across the country and we had leader representation from every market and we developed these different work groups, whether it was care management, whether it was uh, orthopedics group, and they got together and they decide what should the modules look like with an Epic? How should the workflows be? So when we developed this approach, this wasn't a custom built approach. It was really one Trinity model that we can use. So that's really been helpful from a clinical care standpoint, that having one EHR bill that we all can leverage. It also makes future integration with products outside of Epic also very beneficial as well. So one of the things we, we have from an analytics standpoint is we have our own homegrown analytics tool, and we have an amazing analytics team that's been able to develop that. And so we really do leverage a lot of our internal resources around analytics. And those things will, over time, be integrated into Healthy Planet, which is the analytics platform that Epic uses. But a lot of our analytics today that we've been using really been from a homegrown standpoint. And we've seen the value of that. And part of the reason is you don't have a black box, right? So when you control everything, you know all the, the inputs and the outputs. So we can explain why data looks this way when we're having a conversation with a provider and say, hey, this doesn't look quite right. Or how did you calculate the denominator? That's something that's been really helpful. I would also say that something that's maybe more unique to Trinity 
is while we really do have an emphasis on our employee providers, we also have a significant number of affiliate providers that also provide care to our patient base as well. And they do most of that through our clinically integrated networks. So having platforms outside of Epic for those positions that aren't on Epic, such as being able to share information from our homegrown tools is something that we feel has been effective too in terms of our performance. But we also understand that technology, analytics, these are tools. So at the end of the day, this is going to help us provide better patient care, but this won't be the reason why we're providing the best patient care. It really comes to our approach, really focusing on evidence-based healthcare and really doing things that we know have been proven in the literature to be successful. Also being able to listen to the patient. You know, at the end of the day, you know your body the best. And I, I always like to share personal experience. So I remember I was, I was on some medication for myself because we, we do have uh, high blood pressure runs in my family and it just wasn't working for me. But I was able to go back in, look at my, my chart, have that really educated conversation with my provider on where I think we should go. And we were able to jointly develop medication regimen that actually worked for me. And now everything's completely under control. But I really do think leveraging technology more as a tool to be able to successfully engage patients is really what's going to lead to those great outcomes. So I, I do want to emphasize that. But I will say lessons that we are learning from integrating the largest instance of Epic is just continued patience. So when you have an organization as large as ours and you had all these different EHRs, we had different workflows. And that's part of the reasons why we want to pull together this really large group of providers to figure out what those workflows are so that we didn't need to have custom bills in every single market. Also understanding there's going to be challenges and bumps in a road, especially when you first implement uh, Epic Bill into a market. You have to be able to transition all of those legacy patient records to the new EHR platform. So when that patient comes there doing their first visit, the doctor can go in and know what's going on with the patient. And that's something that was a bit of a challenge. And we figured out how to resource that transfer information appropriately. So as we roll this out over time, it becomes better integrated. And then also being very selective of what types of tools in the future we wanna integrate within Epic. So moving towards this singular platform did give us the ability to cut back and streamline on some of the additional vendor support that we're using outside of our EHRs because we had to, because we had so many different EHR systems. Now having a standalone platform we now have that integration. And so it's helped us from a financial standpoint as well, because we don't need to have as many different software vendors that we work with. And we have a very select group that we can integrate with into our build of Epic and have that consistent training experience across all of our markets. Well, Akilah, as we're talking about technology, I wanted to ask you about this partnership that's been formed called Truveta. Truveta is a new company that was co-founded by several different innovative healthcare providers. And the vision really behind this is to save lives with data. So by identifying the data, 
all of the organizations come together and build a statistically significant data platform for studying health in the U.S. And the Trinity Health uh, President and CEO, Michael Slubowski, said Truveta really is an opportunity to leave in the cure for certain diseases by sharing data and then having the scale to dramatically advance innovation in healthcare with a collective commitment to partner on ethical innovation. And I know there's a lot of different organizations that are in this Truveta consortium. They include Advent Health, Advocate, Baptist, Bon Secure, Common Spirit, Hawaii Pacific Health, Henry Ford System, Tenet, and the list goes on. So I, Akil, I, I wanted to ask you about this new partnership and how does that over time going to influence the, the population health management strategy at Trinity Health? Yeah, and so this is a new entity, right? So we're we're still developing uh, that business model. But what what I would say is, I, th I think it's no different than you know when you think about the VA system. And the VA has a wealth of of access in terms of data, and having that unified database, every VA hospital has an academic partner. So you know the VA, Michigan University of Michigan, et cetera. When I was in St. Louis. We had the uh, Washington University in St. Louis and also St. Louis University as our academic partners. And ha them having access to this large integrated pool of data helped them to develop innovative and novel models to provide better patient care. So having this consortium, this partnership of the identified data that anyone within this group can access is ultimately going to help us in the long run lead to innovative solutions to solve healthcare problems. And I also believe that going back to the VA and talk about innovation, this is one of the ways why I think the VA had the ability to get ahead in the private sector was they had this unified stream of data across this entire patient population. Now you take that and you essentially do it in the private sector across multiple organizations. You know, we know knowledge and data is power. And it's amazing what we have the potential to do. So I really see this as a game changer long term, because this is really where we should be going. And hopefully over time, we have more organizations that sign up to be part of this, because having that really unified platform and being able to learn across different population types and also different organizations is only going to make us more effective in improving our health comes over time. So, Kiel, I wanted to ask you also about the work that Trinity Health is doing on the advocacy front for value-based care. This movement towards value, it, it really does take the right type of health policy. And a few weeks ago, we heard from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation about the pause on the global and professional direct contracting model and the application cycle for the performance year 2022. And, you know, I know that that's something that you guys were really thinking about entering into. And the ACLC participated in a coalition letter that was sent to Liz Fowler just to advocate for reopening that application cycle. Obviously, the legislative agenda and the advocacy work being done in value, you know, spans a multitude of different topics. I'm just really interested and curious as to how involved Trinity Health is in your work overseeing the APM strategy to make sure that the right policies are being enacted to support this movement towards value-based care. Yeah, absolutely. So advocacy is something that obviously is really important to us, uh, you know, being a leader in value-based health care getting involved very early on in a lot of these models, such as the next generation ACO, 
we were a little caught by surprise when the direct contracting entities were, were kind of frozen for 2022. And so one of the things we've really been doing is, you know, working jointly with the Healthcare Transformation Task Force and NACOs around A, requesting they reopen the application for direct contract for 2022, but also advocating for if they don't do it, that they extend the next generation ACO program. And that's something that, you know, we advocated for last year and we were able to effectively do that. And there's really strong support around that. I believe that, you know, the success not only that we've had, but also the next generation ACOs have had in providing higher quality, better outcomes to patients is something that is critical. And the learnings that we've been able to develop from the next generation ACO programs are things that we're planning to institute and direct contract and also things that we've been able to utilize in our other accountable care organizations as well. So the importance of being able to have a solution for these ACOs that really have committed the last six years of their life to improving the, the patient care and reducing the total cost of care as well for that patient population is we need to have a, a place for these provider groups to go. So if it's not direct contracting, we really do think that CMS or CMMI in this instance needs to continue to work with us on that. And they've been very open discussions. And so we feel like we are moving in the right directions, finger crossed on that. But we do feel this is very important to our core mission that we can have these groups continue to participate in a value-based healthcare product for 2022. Akil, I want to wrap up the conversation today and just think through the lessons you've learned as a leader in value-based care. I have this image in my head of the healthcare industry being like a, a massive battleship. And it's really difficult to turn this ship. You know, it's it's got momentum, it's moving one direction, and all of a sudden we need to pivot and go a different direction. And, you know, you envision the flexibility of a tugboat or, you know, these these little speedboats that can turn on a dime and 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 we don't have that. But I feel like there's a component of what you're doing that's more like that you know you've got this flexibility and but at the same time you're you're trying to coordinate all of the crew on this battleship to follow you and to turn with <laughs> you and and maybe you're tugging them a little bit along and and kind of initiating that uh, what are the lessons that you've learned as a leader and that you'd pass along to other ACL leaders to your peers about you know staying the course about you know how to affect that change and what's your inspiration that you would share? Yeah, so so this works hard, right? So I, I think that's that's the thing you know you recognize as, as a leader. You're fighting against tradition. You're fighting against a fee for service model, and that's still where the majority of your revenue comes from. And in order to move into this new area of value-based care, you do have to figure out a way to make up for that, that lost revenue because you are taking some of it away. Because you move from a, I get paid for everything I do to not only reducing the total cost of care and doing less, but also now splitting in most instances, the profits that you were traditionally get paid out between yourself and the payer. So you're not getting all that dollars. So really a lot of it is around new patient acquisition, and, and how do you grow your network? And what we learned through our accountable care organizations in particular is that that's been a very attractive model for us to get that new patient acquisition and growth because it becomes a very attractive model for the independent providers 
who A, still want to remain independent, but also have the ability to tap into the benefit of being part of a larger network, collaborating with physicians across different states, also being able to strategically develop a unified financial benchmark that you held accountable to. So there's markets just thinking about from our Medicare population where uh, it's, it's a little bit more challenging to really move the needle because your, your margin there is already so tight on the reimbursement. And when you're able to leverage higher markets in different areas, say like a Philadelphia or Florida market and bring that together, you really can work together to truly focus on value-based healthcare while at the same time making it more feasible that you also be able to have some financial success as well by really integrating a strategic approach. So I would say, you know, kind of ending with this is that, you know, this is, this is hard. We, we have to think about innovative ways to get this done and also think differently about the way we get paid. So if we're able to do those things and provide the right financial incentives, both to the provider and also really to the patient as well, we're going to truly be able to move into this value-based economy where it's a win-win for everyone. And we truly have this unified patient-centric value-based healthcare model. Akil McClay, System Director of APM Operations at Trinity Health. Thank you for joining us today in this race to value. It's certainly a hard race, as you would say, but you know we are going to win it and Trinity Health is leading the way. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. 